One of the reasons that Jane Austen's works are so enduring is because her characters are so memorable. Now, I am somewhat familiar with her works, but not because I've read them, because I've seen them in movies. And one of my favorites is Pride and Prejudice. Uh, there's various versions. Kira Knightley is the one I'm thinking of, who stars as Miss, uh, Lizzie, uh, Miss Elizabeth Bennet. And in the scene that really brings out one of the most memorable characters in my mind is the proposal scene, where she is being proposed to by Mr. Collins, who is the local Anglican priest. Here's what Mr. Collins, Mr. Collins is somewhat of a social climber, and he is a man who's confident in his position and in himself, and he thinks he's actually doing Elizabeth Bennet a favor. Here's how he approaches the matter. My dear Miss Elizabeth, almost as soon as I entered the house, I singled you out as the companion of my future life. But before I am run away with my feelings, he's absolutely not, this is totally deadpan, perhaps I may state the reasons for marriage. Firstly, that it is the duty of a clergyman to set an example of matrimony for his parish. Secondly, I'm convinced that it will add greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, that it is at the urging of my esteemed patron, Lady Catherine, that I select a, a wife. He goes on in this wonderfully romantic way. And now nothing remains for me to assure you in the most animated language of the violence of my affections, and no reproach of the subject will I hear. Now, this is where Miss Bennett starts to protest. She is a woman who knows her heart. She is one who values authenticity in relationships. She is one who isn't just going to be doing the done thing for the done thing's sake. If she's going to be married, she will be married to a man that is worthy of her. And so she protests. She declines. She pushes back. And then here's how Mr. Collins responds, again, with great confidence. I flatter myself, cousin, that... Your refusal is merely a natural delicacy. Besides, you should take into account that despite your manifold attractions, it is by no means certain that another offer of marriage may ever be made to you. So I must conclude that you simply seek to increase my love by the suspense according to the usual practice of elegant females. At about this time, she runs out of the room, just sort of both half amused and half disgusted with all of this. But the reason this works, both in literature and in, in film, is because here's a man who has self-confidence, but not self-awareness. Here is somebody who thinks he knows what he's doing, but we, the audience, know he's making a complete fool of himself. And in that combination of self-confidence with a lack of self-awareness comes no ability to change. Throughout the book, he more or less stays the same character. Throughout the film, he certainly does. And if there's no change, then there's essentially a complacency about who one is and what one is about sets in. And this is the stuff of great comedic art throughout generations. Uh, perhaps a more recent example would be The Office, starring Steve Carell as Michael Scott. Again, confident in his ability as a sales manager, completely non-self-aware. And so the, the reason the series went for, I don't know, nine seasons or something like that is because this has all kinds of situations that, that Carell finds himself in. He has a mug that says, world's greatest boss, but everybody knows that he's not. He, he basically goes through one season after another, one episode after another, offending just about everybody he can, not being aware that that's what he's doing. But what might be fun in the arts is not fun in real life. And this is what our text takes us to. 
because the two texts that were read in the gospel that Cindy read and the Corinthians text of the New Testament tell us that, that to be complacent, to essentially to be self-confident but not aware of one's spiritual, spiritual condition is a serious matter. And that's what we want to explore today in, in our time at Lent. To be complacent is to essentially have an uncritical satisfaction with oneself or their achievement. To say I've arrived, to say there's really nothing more for me to do, to say that we're just going to bump along as we always have been. But the texts don't let us be in that place. And they teach us the seriousness of it. Here's Luke in Luke chapter 13. Jesus is amongst people who are telling him about some more or less recent events and asking him for an interpretation. It says there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And they want to know in so many words, did they do something wrong? These people that were killed by Pilate. We don't have any additional details. But Jesus responds by turning the question around and he tells them, I tell you the truth. He asks them a question. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you the truth, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. And then Jesus adds a news item of his own. Or those 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam, who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. In Bible times, the idea that uh, it was essentially this, the, the theology at work here is that the righteous are blessed and the sinners are condemned and, and suffer as a result of their sinful behavior. Good guys get blessings, bad guys get bad things. And, and Jesus is saying, and that's because they, they, you know, they know the story of Abraham, whom God blessed with any, all kinds of wealth. They know David and his blessing. They know that, that Proverbs speaks about the wise who who are blessed in, in so many ways, but also they have hard things and pre death that is suffered and all kinds of suffering that comes upon those that where, where the presumption is just, just bad things have happened. Remember when Jesus, a man who's born blind, comes before the Lord and the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? Like something must have gone on here for this person to be suffering as he is. That was essentially the theology of the day. And Jesus is taking that because, in a sense, with these questions, this, these uh, people in the crowd are asking him, are we okay? We think we're okay because nothing bad has happened to us at this point. And Jesus essentially says, the real item, the real issue is, have you, everyone must repent in order to be where God truly wants them to be. And without that, you will perish. complacency. The complacency that Christ is talking about here is, the, is essentially to say, somehow I don't need to connect my heart with the Messiah's. Somehow I don't need to come under his lordship. Somehow I don't need to live with God coming down fully human into this world who is showing me the way to conquer sin and death and to be with him forever. I don't, I may not 
be vehement in my disagreement, but I don't necessarily think I need to do anything. Complacency. The Corinthians chapter adds to this theme of spiritual complacency. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and they had all kinds of reasons to be complacent. They, they belonged to the church of Jesus Christ. They came under his lordship. They were people that had uh, felt the Holy Spirit, and yet they were living way too much like they were before that conversion. They were still having fights and divisions among themselves. He calls that out. They're still living uh, in, in a sexually immoral way, not everyone, but enough so that he has to call that out. They're doing some things that even their pagan neighbors aren't doing. The sacraments are being wrongly treated. Instead of being a sacred time around the table with the bread and cup, it's just sort of a every man for himself kind of dinner. And nobody seems to care what the other person is doing. They don't seem to like authority. They, you know, they've got all kinds of divisions, all kinds of issues. And Paul, because he loves them as a spiritual father, he comes to them and he says, don't think that because of your spiritual heritage, even as Christians, that that will somehow save you if you remain complacent and if you start to give in to temptation. See, Jesus speaks to complacency for what we do, how we repent in, in response to him. And Paul is speaking about complacency in terms of how he responds to temptation. Here's, here's what Paul says. He uses the warnings from Israel's history. He uses, he goes back to the time where the Israelites had been freed from captivity in Egypt and were now coming across the promised land. And even his, his argument is this, even though that these Israelites had experienced the deliverance of God. First of all, they're people of the covenant. They've been circumcised. Second of all, they've been rescued by Jesus. The, the Passover has happened. They've been saved from death. They have been mightily protected from the pursuit of Pharaoh, the, the, whose army was drowned in the Red Sea. They're now, they've come across that. They're in the desert. Jesus, God has said he will lead them. And then there's this amazing Christophany in the passage about, G, about they followed Christ the rock. Whoa, what, what's that about? If you want to nerd out about that, we'll have snacks right after uh, church service. But this is this amazing kind of theological element of who Jesus is and, and his presence with the Israelites in the promised land. It's really great and really cool, but we're not going to talk too much more about it. It's just Paul going back, looking at the history of the Israelites to say, if God didn't spare them with all that connection, all that privilege that they had, don't think that he will spare you. Don't think that the temptations that are coming to you are things that are just going to be overwhelming and that you, and that you can't do anything about he issues a warning. He says, these things, referring to the Israelites, happened to them as examples and were written down for us as warnings on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Or as they say in the King James, take heed lest you fall. No temptation is overcome. You accept that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. Complacency. That, that just that attitude that says, you know, I'm, I'm probably okay. I'm, I think I'm okay, as is. I, you know, God took care of me a long time ago. But let me say this. Complacency is a killer. 
It's a spiritual killer. It, it, you know, there's debate whether that, whether continuing in a worldly way somehow takes you out of experiencing eternity. Uh, Chrysostom, John Chrysostom of the late 5th century, um, said this. Wherefore, even though thou, talking about this Pauline passage, even, even though thou stand, yet take heed lest ye fall. For our standing here is not secure standing. No, not until we be delivered out of the waves of this present life and have sailed into a tranquil haven. Be not therefore high-minded in your standing, but guard against your falling. For if Paul feared who is, who is firmer than all of us, how much more ought we to fear? But you may come from a bit of a Calvinist persuasion that talks about the perseverance of the saints. Essentially, the Calvin, sent, Calvin was looking at, at the election of the saints. Really, if Ephesians chapter 1, the, the predestination. And he was saying if God has elected people, they can't fall from that salvation. But in a somewhat innovative theological move, he looks at this passage and says, the fact that you persevere and you take heed and you adhere to the, you know, you watch, you watch out for the warnings, you don't grow complacent, that's proof that you are one of the elect. Personally, I find Chrysostom a little bit more uh, to the point for my soul. Complacency is a killer. And if it's not at that level, it's at every other level in between. If we're complacent about our spiritual life, how does our relational life look like? If we're complacent about uh, approaching the Lord, what does that say for how we actually experience Him? If we're complacent in our prayers, where are we seeing the power of God uh, manifest in our life? Complacency, whether we know it or not, it really is a, is a killer. Now, what are some of the signs of, of complacency? I think there's a few. Here's one. You know, what, what are some of the most powerful memories you have of interacting with the Lord or seeing Him work mightily in your life? You know, if our best days were when we were in college, uh, that would be a concern to me. I, I think the Lord is always moving us by degrees into a place of, of greater depth with Him of greater fruitfulness in ministry, of greater expectation and hope. And if we're kind of waxing nostalgic about, man, I remember when we had that crusade and I remember when all those people came to faith and uh, that was a good time. That's complacent. That might be a sign that we're complacent. Or if we really take an inventory of what we think about and where, here's the key, where our affections are. Are they on the things of this world? Do I think... We, we, if we're working or studying or those things, look, that'll command the 40, 50, 60 hours a week that just kind of goes with that territory. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where our hearts and our affections really lie. If I'm really thinking about what that job will do for me and it puffs up my pride and it has a certain remuneration factor and it has all these things that I really long for, things that my not believing friend would want the same things for himself or herself, if that's where that is, then I have to wonder, I have to question, I have to take an inventory. What is going on with where my heart is? Am I invested in the, more in the things of the world than in the things of the Lord? Final kind of symptom of, of complacency is, where's my desire for Christ? Has it cooled? Are we kind of, we may be on speaking terms, but we're not on great speaking terms. You know, sort of a high bye in the morning and a hello, how was your day in the night? And then that's it. 
See, when, when Christ gets a hold of our heart, when we start to apprehend him and, and, and kind of like, Lord, I, I don't want to be complacent kind of heart response, it's like, great. And, and he will start to move significantly in our lives in ways that, that engage our hearts, engage our affections, engage our desire to know him more. But if this message and this Lenten season has caught us in a place of just being cool to him, because of things that we don't understand. I'm not saying it's a, it's a big willful sin. Sometimes we really do kind of get dumped out the side and we feel like, oh my goodness, I don't even know how to make sense of what just happened. I don't know how to make sense of this season that I'm going through. And it can create a certain distance between us and the Lord. But it's a distance that the Lord wants to close if we would allow him to do so. If we wouldn't just say, well, I guess that's the way it is. So how do we move from complacency? I'm glad you asked. Because our texts point out that Jesus is the one who moves us. Remember, uh, Paul was talking about a way of escape. And, and he says, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way of escape. In other words, he knows that you're tempted. He knows that under your own strength, your own power, under my strength, my power, I cannot make this happen. Can't get out. Friends of mine, uh, more and more friends of mine are doing this escape room experience. Maybe some of you guys have done it. I have yet to do it. But if you're not familiar with the concept, the, the escape room is actually a physical place that has lots of rooms. You go down, you drive there, park, get out. And you're, it's usually kind of a team building exercise. And you do it, therefore, with a bunch of friends. And you're given a challenge. One guy I talked to said the challenge that they had was that there was a, a bad guy who stole some stuff and uh, was mean and, and the stuff that he stole was in his house and he was away and the team had to go figure out how to get to his house, take the stuff, steal from him that he stole, get it back and I guess give it to the rightful owner before he got home. And they had an hour to do that. That's the escape room. So you're given clues and the clues help you Go from one room to another until you get to the goal, get the loot, and get back. So um, as they're doing that, usually there's somebody who emerges with self-confidence but no self-awareness in this escape room. <laughs> somebody who claims to be the leader. I got it. I figured this out. Only to, and so everybody kind of gives them the benefit of the doubt, right, until nothing happens, right? Ten minutes, 15 minutes, that we're just, we're losing time. We're, we're going to get killed. It's going to be terrible. And so... You know, they, this is why this is a team building exercise, to figure out who actually knows what's going on, who really has the true wisdom that's necessary for this. Jesus, if I can use that analogy, is very much in that escape room. We're in places, if we're complacent, that I think it's hard to get out of, that we've tried to get out of before, but the Lord goes before us. He says that, attempt, that, that temptation to stay complacent, to stay where we are, to think that it's just going to be okay, or I'm you know, I just, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to stay put. He says, I can get you out. I will lead you out. I, I am like, and he uses, in, in his words in Luke, he uses the analogy of, of a gardener. I'm like somebody who, who knows that you should be producing more fruit than you are. You're in a soil that just isn't working. There's no fruit where it should be. This is the master in the garden that Jesus closes that passage in Luke that Cindy read with the parable. He tells him a parable about a fig tree that's not bearing any fruit, and it should have been bearing fruit for the last three years. 
And he says, it's a waste of soil. Take it out. And the gardener says, give me a year. Let me dig around the plant. Let me fertilize it. Let me take care of it. If it still doesn't bear fruit, then okay. This is how Christ comes to us in Lent. To take whatever's on our heart, to take whatever those places of complacency are, those places where we're not taking temptation seriously or repentance, those places where when we start to look, we think, man, this is just a colossal mess. I don't even know what to do. Just, just let him start to do his gardening. What does that look like? It can look like a lot of things. I think it looks like love first. I think it looks like affirmation. I think it looks like the father who welcomes back his prodigal son, runs to meet him, puts a robe on him, puts his ring back on his finger, doesn't hold any sins against him. Says your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. Says there's no more time to, you don't need to be breaking out the pictures of your great ministry days. Those are going to be ahead. Because that's what he does. And it's the gardener who makes the soil fertile. We don't do it. The fig tree's not doing it. We're not doing it. Jesus is doing it. And so my hope for me and prayer for me, prayer for you, is to say, Lord, where are those places I'm complacent? Where do I need to let you dig around the plant, as the parable tells us? Where do you need to, where do you want to do that? I may be resistant, I may be reluctant. Complacency may just be kind of the truce that I've made in this thing. But let's open our hearts this Lent. Let's do some of the, the work that's required just to invite the gardener in and say, have your way with me, Lord, that I might not be complacent as I once was, but I might be fruitful as you intended. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.